I'm Alex. And I'm Matt. And welcome back to our show, Sources and Methods, also online at sourcesandmethods.com. Our guest for the program is Mark Bernstein, a Harvard PhD who developed a piece of software that we'll be discussing at length today called Tinderbox, a way to write things down, link them up, and share them, to quote directly from the book Mark wrote to accompany the software. We'll dive deep on what information sources he's consuming and what he does with that information. As always, this session and more can be downloaded at our website, sourcesandmethods.com. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Mark, it's, it's really great to, to have you on. And, um, uh, you know, I, you and I know each other for um, quite a few years now. I attended a, a two-day Tinderbox workshop uh, in uh, Massachusetts um, a few years ago, uh, maybe five years ago now. Um, that was kind of at the beginning of my journey with Tinderbox. And I suppose as a way of kind of introducing uh, the the software in you, um, I should say that, well, you know, all of the, the books and kind of research projects that I've done, um, almost all of them have started um, and progressed uh, using some kind of Tinderbox document. And, uh, you know, this includes um, both the kind of note taking uh, during the research phase, as well as um, processing information. And you and I have exchanged some of my kind of more more complicated uh, database type things, um, which which maybe we can get into later. Uh, but I mean, in general, Tinderbox for for those people who, who aren't aware, Tinderbox is a software for essentially handling pieces of information, handling notes. Uh, and finding ways to get some kind of uh, meaning out of them. And, you know, there's a there's a great book called The Tinderbox Way, which you wrote. Um, uh, did you write this before or um, kind of early on in the in the development of Tinderbox or, or was this was did this come later on? No, I uh, started the Tinderbox Way a few years after we released the original version of Tinderbox. Uh, mostly to look at some of the complex issues about taking notes, about which people were curious, and also to uh, relate some of what we learned in the process of making Tinderbox. Well, people don't talk very much about how software is made, and it's actually much more interesting than is usually recognized. The book is interesting. I think it's, it works as a kind of standalone book as well. Um, and I mm -hmm. hope you know we're going we're to talk more about kind of notes and what it means to take notes. Um, uh, Matt, I know you you read the book recently. Uh, only what, what, what were your, your thoughts? I I, uh, I quite enjoyed it actually. The you know it's it's part of a manual uh, of sorts on on how the software works and and how you can get the the most out of the software, but. Uh, Mark, honestly, the parts I enjoyed most were, were when you kind of uh, philosophized, if you will, or, or editorialized about um, the importance of taking notes and, and how kind of if you do this on a, on a systematic scale, uh, you can see a lot of improvements to, I mean, a, a wide range of things. Like you said, it's, it's researchers doing this, it's computer engineers working on this, it's authors, journalists, etc. Um, and, and actually, those, those are my... Those are my favorite parts of the book, particularly towards the end uh, when you kind of took the macro view on uh, the importance of taking notes. We spend so much time thinking about using computers for presentation, for uh, making our finished ideas attractive and persuasive and 
making them look good, uh, we actually spend relatively little time thinking about how these machines can help us uh, refine our ideas or capture our ideas before they slip away. Uh, everyone's everyday knowledge work is incredibly hard, and we really need to work harder uh, to make capturing ideas and recording them just a little bit easier and a little more more common. Uh, I'm curious, was there a, a specific moment, you know, you, you reference in the book, you know, that wake up in the middle of the night moment and write something down? What Was that what prompted you to begin seemingly kind of a, a lifelong journey to create Tinderbox? Was there a, a moment there where you said, you know what, I, I think we need to create this piece of software to take this all to the next level? Before Tinderbox, we worked on a hypertext system called StorySpace, uh, which originally was a tool for hypertext narrative, but which grew over the years to accommodate all sorts of roles, in, mostly in uh, colleges. Uh, one of those roles was information gathering. People were shoehorning uh information from sociological fieldwork, for example, into this tool that was meant for uh, writing uh, postmodern fiction. Uh, mm -hmm. This created all sorts of problems, partly that the sorts of tools that an anthropologist feels comfortable with are not necessarily the tools that an English professor is going to embrace. Uh, worse, mm -hmm. The sorts of tools uh, that a sociologist can buy are different from what a, uh, an English professor is comfortable buying. And we actually had a delegation stopping off on their way back to China to say, please rename the product. Uh, it's embarrassing us to uh, <laughs> send in purchase orders for something called Story Space. Uh, but there was much more that they needed besides a more academic-sounding name. Uh, mm -hmm. We gave them a lot of what they needed, uh, not the academic name, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's lots of things to talk about when uh, when we think about uh, notes and how to use notes, the kind of the lost art of note-taking. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I, I direct, direct readers to to both read the the tinderbox way and to look at uh your various kind of uh posts uh, over the years on your um uh on your website and blog which is markbernstein.org if i'm not mistaken that's mm -hmm. correct markbernstein.org if you go to markbernstein.com you find something quite different but i'm 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 quite interested um you make a you make a point and it's it's something which comes comes up quite often uh, if you spend a little bit of time kind of getting to know Tinderbox and and the kind of ecosystem around it, this idea of um, incremental formalization, which um, is, 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 is basically where um, you start off, um, when you start off learning about a new subject, uh, you know nothing about it. You don't even know kind of what categories the different bits of information you're starting to know fit into. So as you start out, you'll, you'll, You'll assemble your notes, you know, in in a kind of random, uh, random, random order, um, and slowly as you start to understand a bit more, you start moving things in in, in certain places, and you start putting all of the, uh, you know, the notes um, about a certain area of that topic in a certain place, and the others in in another place. Um, 
uh, you know, this whole idea of having um, having a kind of pre pre-constructed um, attitude to knowledge where you have all of these kind of um, uh, blocks or structures uh, um, existing already. I think it's, it's, it's interesting that there's a kind of tension there between not having any structure and, um, uh, and uh, essentially, yeah, not, not, not knowing how things fit together um, and coming with a, a very rigid structure. I was wondering if you could say something about that that tension um, uh, be- between those two different kinds of ways of formulating knowledge. Well, when you're starting a research project, as you said, you don't know all how the information should be structured. In fact, discovering the structure is the essence of what research is about. Uh, in the same way that for a student in a course, uh, the facts in the course are relatively unimportant. It's the knowledge, the understanding of how the field fits together that uh, the student really needs to gain. But if the student already knew that, then the student doesn't need to take the course. Yeah, Mark, um, right, following right with that, you, you have a very nice line from, from your book that I have highlighted here um, that comes from that that sense of you know if the student knew everything they wouldn't need to take this course which of course is about uh, understanding and you write here understanding often emerges gradually from the accumulation of factual detail and from our growing comprehension of the relationships among isolated details only after examining the data laying it out and handling it can we feel comfortable in reaching complex decisions is so essentially you're you're advocating this kind of uh, the importance of knowing quite a few things, even if the the depth is not all that deep. Oh, you certainly need to base understanding on actual knowledge. We, we've mm-hmm. had experiments uh, in the political realm of trying to base understanding on uh, hope or simply assumption of how the things ought to end up without knowledge, and they've not ended well. Uh, mm-hmm. We need to understand, uh, which means we need to understand the world as it is. Uh, but we are looking for some deeper understanding as well, and that changes over time. Let's also remember that what we're trying to do is bound to change over time as well. Uh, we think that we're going to write one sort of a book, but often by the time we finish the book, it's a very different sort of book. Uh, we think that we're going to write a doctoral dissertation on one topic, but by the end, the topic may have completely changed. We think we're going to build one sort of a product, but the product that we deliver is often very different from what we had in mind in the first place. Uh, how, how does that impact how how you um, how you design a piece of software? Um, I mean, or how you you facilitate people to 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 kind of move down that journey i mean uh, i'm i'm completely out uh, coming at this from a, a non-technical perspective but it would seem to me a lot of the software it assumes that you know essentially we only have one way of structuring information and once you structure it that way it's incredibly difficult to start uh changing how that's structured or or, or shifting that around in terms of just just in terms of the the design or, or the 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 thinking about how the software works is that particularly complicated or or am i just um 
No, it, it certainly can be. And this was real recognized very early in the history of computing. Uh, the first solution, which was the orthodox solution until the last decade, was to plan thoroughly and very well. In fact, when I was first learning to program, the uh, orthodox uh, methods that people learned in school uh, advocated not actually writing a line of code until you had an extremely good detailed plan of every detail of the program. Now, people didn't actually program this way, but everyone learned that this was the right way to program. Right. And as a result, for an entire generation of programmers felt that the way they worked was doing it wrong. Uh, uh, just in the last decade, uh, instead of trying to inveigle, persuade, uh, coerce people to do things right, a movement called Agile Software Development grew up saying, essentially, that since we all break all these rules, perhaps we're actually doing it right and the rules are wrong. Uh, mm. And in fact, uh, what we can do with appropriate tools and appropriate ways of thinking about software is build the software the way people liked in their, uh, as a guilty pleasure to build software. Leap in, build what seems to be what's needed just at the moment, and then refine it. Uh, it's also uh, something that writers often do. Many writers will uh, leap in and write a great deal of prose and only then go back to edit it. Uh, Roger Ebert used to say that you can't uh, revise what you haven't gotten around to writing. Hmm. That's and, interesting. And, oh. and so th this movement where uh, you write the software and then revise it, uh, where most of what you do is editing rather than uh, designing and then debugging has been extremely fruitful and has gone in only 10 or 15 years from being uh, uh, outlying heresy to probably the dominant paradigm uh, for software development today. In a way, you're, you're essentially saying, I mean, this would be talking more about uh, books rather than computer coding, but but writing or, or taking notes about writing, this is kind of the, the way of thinking, is that, you know, writing this forces understanding, writing things forces clarity, uh, et cetera. You can go back and constantly revise it, but essentially the, the importance is to, to write and take notes as you're doing it. It's important, too, because when you write, you're talking to yourself, and mm -hmm. or rather you're talking to the page, and... When looking at the page, the page talks back to you. A uh, Japanese researcher, computer scientist, Kumio Nakakoji, uh, has done a good deal of fascinating work with this representational talkback cycle uh, and uh, explores ways where we can amplify the effect of this interchange, making it uh, clearer that we are in fact meeting minds on the screen. And one of those mm -hmm. minds is, in fact, an embodiment of ourselves. Um, I mean, it's interesting. Um, uh, I find um, uh, the way the way I use uh, the way I use Tinderbox, and Tinderbox, I should say, is is um, can be 
difficult to understand um, from it's it's difficult to understand how you use it until you start using it. Maybe that's a slightly paradoxical way of presenting it. Um, I suppose you could say the same about a piece of paper as well. You know, it's it's um, you know un un until you start drawing, you don't really know what kinds of things are possible um, with uh, pencil and paper. Um, and the thing I always found found interesting is that whenever I would um, start a new a new project, and this could be anything from uh, you know uh, a book which would end up being two hundred fifty thousand words long, or you know just planning out a speech I was given. Just starting to put things down on paper, uh, and the act of um, this incremental formalization, this starting to figure out what things go with other things, what kind of structure might start developing. Um, uh, I always found it really, really interesting that just the act of um, uh, starting to take notes um, would kind of start to solidify things. And then sometimes, you know, you do you put a put a certain structure uh, down, and then instinctively you would say, ah, that, that doesn't work. But you wouldn't have known that un until you started kind of playing around with those those kind of structural elements. And simply the way. Uh, the, the sequence of presentation in an argument, especially for something that's embedded in time the way a lecture or a performance is, uh, is crucial and can really only be thought about once you have reified the work in some way. Uh, we think that naturally stories are always told from beginning to end, but in fact we seldom tell stories exactly that way. Uh, the effective way to tell a story may often be to omit the beginning or to postpone the beginning until after we've established the beginning or sometimes to start at the end. Uh, it's uh, hard to think about that and to try different structures, uh, different sequences of presentation, unless you can get the material down in some way. Now, we used to do this with uh, cutting pieces of paper into little bits and taping them together. You can do it with three by five cards. And, and there's nothing wrong with doing it with uh, hard physical things. But in fact, uh, the screen, the computer, makes it much easier for us to handle this sort of work uh, in a way that doesn't get us all tangled up with bits of string. Remember, this is where the expression red tape came from. Red tape is what they use to keep bundles of uh, documents connected to each other before they invented paper clips. It's, uh, it's funny you mentioned the, the physical part. Uh, one of Alex and I's uh, kind of first bonding experiences, uh, if you will, was when, when Alex took pity on me. We were uh, sharing a house in Kabul, and he saw me with an enormous stack of, of three by five cards. And he said, uh, he kind of put his, put his hand on my shoulder, you know, and said, let, let me show you the light here. And, uh, and, and the move has been towards these kinds of systems, uh, that, um, you know, the, these massive enhancements using computers that will do most of the thinking for us like Tinderbox and, and others. Um, I, I have to say, I am constantly surprised now knowing what I know and, and having gone further down the rabbit hole, um, how many people do not use uh, these kinds of, of systems that, that really can can take everything to the next level and organize everything in vastly superior ways than 
than we can. And I mean, I, I go to the, you know, Mark, you and I are, are both here in Boston. I go to the Boston Public Library and I'm still shocked to see everybody's writing things down. Uh, three by five cards replete with, uh, you know, the, the modern equivalent of, of red tape. It's, uh, it's amazing. Why do you think more people don't use these kinds of software? I, I don't know. And if I did know, of course, I'd be uh, happier about it. Uh, <laughs> what, what, one reason is that people uh, don't like to think about their process of writing. Uh, we have this essentially romantic uh, conception of idea generation writing that it's simply inspiration and it should come to you in a flash and that it's mystical and that it's based in some way on your innate goodness. And therefore, <laughs> people don't spend much time thinking about how to improve because you can't improve on your own innate goodness. Uh, so, so that's one reason. Uh, I think schools have a lot to do with it too. Uh, mm -hmm. Schools often really happy you raised people, the, the education issue. I was going to pick your brain about that. Uh, I, I remember being forced to do things like write outlines, not so much because the outline is a useful tool for writers, though it is, but because outlines are really easy to grade. And hmm. so uh, teachers wanted to see that you were doing the work of organizing by seeing the outline and often grading on the format of the outline, which is completely irrelevant. Uh, the result mm -hmm. of this is that people just hate the externalities because they just feel like they're back in third grade. I can tell you this is yet another uh, a small story here. I, I can remember the day, uh, it was right after college, it would have been much better to learn this before college, um, I was working as a, a young researcher at a think tank in, in Washington, D.C., and I can remember uh, the exact moment I realized all of a sudden that, that while writing a book can be challenging, it, it certainly can be done. And uh, this is uh, to reference your, con your, uh, your concept earlier about, you know, you don't just write something from beginning to middle to end. I was uh, helping uh, uh, this author at, at this think tank write a book, and... Um, <laughs> my very first reaction was that was that she was cheating because we were writing just one chapter at a time and I realized she was putting these things together. Um, I, I have to say it, it was then that it dawned on me, and that's a very simple observation, but it dawned on me that, that these kinds of monumental undertakings, writing books, writing articles, uh, coding computer programs, etc., are largely actually a matter of just staying organized and um, you know, software like, like yours goes a long way towards uh, helping people do that. But, but again, I, I'm amazed that this came to me after <laughs> my formal education had, had been completed rather than um, uh, on the front end. I, I'm still kind of constantly amazed look, looking backwards um, at, at the, the amount of software, the amount of, of new systems. I guess mainly it's because you say it's all been developed really within the last 10 to 15 years. But that the the adoption rate for for this technology remains uh, small. One of the reasons that we haven't touched on is that for a long time, people who think about what we might do with computers have viewed work as essentially 
a horrible thing that involves uh, routine manipulation and filling out of forms. A uh, sort of dystopian, fa- professor's dystopian fantasy of what an insurance adjuster does. Uh, this is a completely specious view of what work is, but we've spent a great deal of time in this, uh, computer science thinking about ways to make work more efficient based on this model. Uh, the result is that we emphasize usability, meaning accessibility for novices, and first impression, meaning uh, can we impress a manager with the uh, potential utility of software that he is going to buy to make someone else use. Uh, these two Assets have been useful for the production end of software. Uh, mm-hmm. After all, when I was in graduate school, the way you made a presentation slide was you drew it on paper and took it across the street to the photo lab where they would photograph it and send you back three uh, 35 millimeter slides. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and and so, so we've done a great job in improving that workflow. But we haven't done a great job of improving the workflow of thinking about what should go on the slides. Could we integrate systems like yours and and others uh, easily into uh, kind of a, a mass education system? Could could we, you know, where we are today, um, you know, kind of change the curriculum, change these things so that these things became more popular, more widely used? I, I think the results would be astonishing. Oh, I think it's happening. I think it's uh, a gradual okay. process. Uh, and certainly it's hard because uh, at this point, most of the world education is so poorly funded that mm-hmm. teachers and educators and people who think about education uh, have no time to think uh, beyond what to do and what can be done tomorrow. Uh that's a real problem, and I, I don't know how we solve that problem. But certainly, as people uh, adapt these tools and use these tools, uh, they become pervasive, and even the educators will catch up with that. Uh, we used mm-hmm. to talk a great deal, and in fact, people still talk a great deal about whether computers improve writing or not. And in fact, mm-hmm. it's turned out to be quite difficult to unequivocally demonstrate that computers do improve writing. But we know that computers do improve writing because we know that just about everyone who writes professionally either does it on a computer or uses some other technology as a performative gesture. Uh, Sure, there are people who write their novels with a fountain pen, but no one does it because it's faster and easier. I think your your comment about the computer and, and these kinds of efficiency uh, tools were used largely for the production end. You know, if I'm thinking about a, a modern classroom, that's actually where I would say you see most of the impact as well. It's uh, the smart boards with you know the the ease of presenting those slides and and all that. But nobody's actually taken it the next step further. I'm I'm happy to say. <laughs> uh, that are happy to hear that that you think it's uh probably going to start changing uh, and i should say as well that you know that that uh it's not just a matter of you know uh 
throwing a bunch more computers at people and and kind of giving them access to to better software. I mean, there are all sorts of things which I wish I'd be told I'd been told about the kind of the um, uh, meta aspects of learning um, throughout my um, kind of school days. Maybe the research wasn't there, and maybe people didn't know these things. But certainly, you know, whether it's things like memorization techniques um and um absolutely uh, things like this which um you know if, certainly if, let alone my kind of secondary schooling um my my university courses studying languages um and so on would i would have done things in a completely different way uh if i um, um if i would have known about those things back then yeah i i have to say alex just to address that right there i i actually think about you fairly frequently on uh on this point, uh, when I think about my own education and, and memory and other things, essentially it was, um, these are things to learn. These are things, um, that you'll be tested on and, and graded on. But I feel at very few points, uh, in my, in my education was I actually told, here are the tools that you can use that are available to you to study to learn here's how you know the brain works in terms of memory here's how uh writing can work as a process rather than just i need a 20 page paper on this topic by you know two weeks from now um and uh yeah that that's why i find software like tinderbox and and others so so interesting uh mark um uh you know tinderbox obviously is 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 a piece of software for uh, understanding and thinking about the world. Um, given that um, more and more there's this kind of um, uh, never-ending fire hose of uh, data available to us, um, uh, you know, not necessarily that we need to put our faces in its stream always, but um, there's this kind of uh, mass, massive information. Um, I was just wondering if you had any... Um, kind of uh, advice for people um whether it's in the context of tinderbox or or not how to how to manage this information how um how to um uh, understand it how to process it how to 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 kind of um exist in this in this new world because i i think it's it's uh, it brings a certain number of new challenges the challenge is new, but the challenge has always been new. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Too Much to Know by Annie Blair, a medievalist at Harvard, that explores the information overload of the 9th through 12th centuries and the technologies evolved then to uh, try to cope with having far more information of coming in than anyone could keep track of. Uh, we've been having information overload for a very long time. Uh, the most important thing is not to forget that the information actually matters. Uh, keeping your hands on as much information as you can handle, even if you may not retain every fact and every snippet and every relationship, actually seeing them and working with them and retaining as much as you can is absolutely indispensable. And that's the first thing that we can't forget. Uh, the second is actually trying to set up an argument uh, with your associates, with your rivals, or uh, just with yourself 
uh, dialogue is tremendously valuable. Uh, I had a very interesting discussion at ReaderCon uh, this year about uh, writing in books. Uh, I was brought up that books were shared and uh, kept forever, and so you shouldn't uh, write in them. But uh, lots of people I know were brought up that the whole point of reading was to write a dialogue and an argument with the author in the margin. And they now go back and revisit their younger arguments and the original text. Um, that can be very valuable. Uh, how, does, how does dialogue um, uh, kind of help you um uh, come to terms with the information, or maybe maybe have a have a have a kind of example of that. One clear way is simply in trying a design and reflecting on whether the design looks right, feels like whether it's something that I feel that I want to use. Uh, it's very difficult to know whether a given uh, system is going to be. Uh, excuse me, one moment. Siri just decided it wanted to talk to me. That's another <laughs> illustration. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it can be very difficult to know a priori whether a design is going to be pleasing, satisfactory, inspiring, efficient, or simply wrong. Uh, but sketching it, putting it down on the screen, putting it down on paper, you can often get some idea of whether it's going to work and how it could be made better. Uh, I also, when I write, find that most of the work is done in revision, not in the first draft. The first draft does commit you to some things, and that's a useful commitment, but it's in the revision that the real work happens. And revision, of course, is a dialogue with your perhaps recently former self. So both Alex... Alex and I are, are I think, uh, safe to say devotees of a of, uh, memory technique called uh, spaced repetition. Uh, do, you, do you use that, or have you, are you familiar with that? I'm not. Mm. Uh, it's essentially the idea of spacing out uh, information over periods of time so that it moves uh, essentially from your short-term memory to your, to your long-term memory. And, and Alex and I have been, been using this, uh, for a while, but, but I'm curious in, in talking with somebody who kind of re repeatedly insists on, on the power of note-taking, um, it does essentially taking notes and, and being organized, uh, with these notes re reduce the importance of, of just kind of raw memorization? Well, I hope so. Uh, in fact, Taking notes can be useful for retaining information, too. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the habits of intellectuals of the 18th century was a commonplace book, uh, writing down passages that you read that you wanted to remember, both because they fixed it in your mind, simply the act of copying, and also mm -hmm. because in a world where books were scarce, you uh, weren't just going to be able to pick up the phone or walk down to the bookstore or order it up from the web or from Amazon. Uh, you were going to have to find someone with that book again, uh, which might not be convenient or even possible if you wanted to consult that passage. 
I've been suggesting to people that the commonplace book, perhaps made a little bit easier, is not a bad model for uh, learning material that you want to retain for a good period of time, even in this world of the Internet. Uh, copying and pasting and saving and reviewing from time to time is a tremendously valuable practice. Or look at uh, Alan's getting things done methodology, uh, which asserts that it's for organizing your schedule, deciding and remembering what it is you want to do, but whose core practice is actually making a very large list that contains everything that you might want to do and reviewing it regularly. Uh, that mm -hmm. kind of thoughtful reflection and taking the time for that kind of thoughtful reflection is an indispensable way to actually know what it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. Even in this digital age of, of sorts. Um, I, uh, to, to quote again from your, your book, my, my favorite chapter actually um, was towards the end of uh, this interlude living with notes. And I noted, I wrote down your, your tips here. Uh, you, you elaborated on each one, but I'll, I'll just run through them briefly here. Um, the first, you said, write it down. I mean, that, that goes right to what you were just saying. But after that, improve the moment. You need to have two journals. Always have a pen. Have a good home for this information. And uh, you end with, with blogging, which I think Alex has a question on in a moment. But essentially, that that idea of constantly having a pen on you and I mean you even suggested drawing uh, just as a way to to keep kind of a current on what you're working on and this kind of uh, routine or habitual reflection on on what you're learning um, those things all still stand or do you have any have any additions to those uh, I think they've changed a little bit with the advent of uh, smartphones and tablets uh, mm -hmm. We certainly can do things that uh, portable devices we all carry that used to be reserved for uh, paper. So the importance of actually using paper as opposed to a uh, mobile surf uh, digital surface, I think, may be overstated in the book. I still like paper, but if you want to use your iPad for the same function, that's certainly possible now. Uh, I think for the most part, uh, and of course blogging has changed, but uh, for the most part I think all of those are true. Uh, mm -hmm. So an interesting uh, book uh, by the decade old called A Book of One's Own by Thomas Mellon, who's otherwise a novelist, uh, which reviews the practice of journal and diary writing. Uh, and, uh, it's an extremely interesting way to look at all the sorts of things that people can do with daily writing uh, hmm. for themselves, uh, not necessarily for a specific purpose, but uh, as, again, it's a practice where the real dialogue, even with yourself, can be tremendously valuable in clarifying what it is you're about. I think I think that's that's kind of uh, brings us to, to to what I wanted to ask about blogging. Um, uh, you know, the, the kind of um, um, uh, how to say the 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 um, 
the acceptedness or the the kind of time and styles and and and, and the way people have used used blogging has changed quite a lot um uh, even over the last uh, 4 to 5 years and i i would guess the advent of um kind of micro blogging tools like twitter um and facebook and stuff has has something to do with that um I know you um, keep a um, uh, and, and, and regularly update um, uh, an extremely kind of uh, eclectic and fascinating blog yourself. Um, could you say something a bit about about how um, um, how kind of blogging has changed as a tool um, as being used by other people and kind of how you situate yourself within that? Well, there's a continuum of practice from. Uh, private journals to uh, journalistic publishing, of course. And uh, what we call various steps along that line has been shifting uh, more or less continuously over the last decade. Uh, when I wrote Tinderbox Way, uh, the sort of weblog that I Right, uh, for a modest but uh, fairly broad audience uh, that's interested in a variety of things. Or um, the sort of weblog my neighbor Philip Warner writes, uh, sectionhiker.com, for a very specific but dedicated audience of a specific kind of hiking, uh, were the main models for weblogs. One, one about a topic, one about essentially a personality. Uh, now we have a entire continuum from the sort of weblogs that uh, the major publications do, uh, the Atlantic Monthly or the New York Times, uh, to the enormous success of very private weblogs, which was the underlying model for Facebook, of course. Uh, people who wanted to do something very much like weblog, but really only wanted to do it for their immediate family circle. Uh, early on, I think people viewed weblogs that only your mother read as being the epitome of failure, when, in fact, <laughs> writing for your mother is actually a very nice thing to do. And <laughs> it may please you, and it certainly pleases her. And so it's a, it's a commendable thing, not a silly or ludicrous thing by any means. We just didn't understand at first because it looked like it was using the same tools that people use to publish newspapers online. Well, the tools are the same, but it's all a hammer. Mark, I'd, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about uh, hypertext. We referenced it uh, earlier and uh, you know it's it's obviously a, a main theme of of uh, Tinderbox and 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 other things and essentially storytelling with hypertext. You've you've written uh, another book or at least edited um, a book and um, you know you you kind of have this this manifesto on your on your website that says the the future of serious writing will lie on the screen. We will read for reading is indispensable, but we will be less closely tied to the book to paper and ink. The chief innovation of electronic writing is the link, the connection between pages that makes the web possible and that has already transformed the way we read. How has it transformed the way we read? And has it also changed the way we write? Uh, it certainly has changed the way we both read and write. Uh, after all, m most reading and writing 
now happens on the web, uh, either literally on the web or in email or other electronic memos that contain links to things that are on the web. Scholars have always been aware of the depth of interconnection of ideas and thoughts and writing, but now this has escaped the academy, and we are all aware of how ideas and thoughts and contributions and arguments are interlinked in a dense tangle. Uh, so that's certainly a change. Now what's coming, not here yet, but certainly on the way, is a change in long-form writing. That is, writing that's of a scale that's larger than what you can cons comfortably consume at a glance, at uh, a page or two. Uh, for that, we've long been accustomed to doing a great deal of work in support of mass production because the ideas have to be arranged once and manufactured at one time to suit everybody or rather to suit some ideal reader and to accommodate all the others. We don't need to do that anymore. And in the same way that in a live lecture, we can get a sense of what is being understood, what's being appreciated, what's being uh, received, and what is not, we can now write uh, documents that can adapt to what the reader is actually doing and what the reader thinks he or she is interested in. Uh, mm -hmm. th this is clearly going to change the way we read and write. And it's a necessary consequence of the fact that we no longer have to bind books at the factory. The books are uh, streams of bits, and we can assemble and reassemble those streams of bits whenever we, we want them to. Is this technology making us uh, smarter? Uh, there, of course, you know, the, the, the voracious debate rages about e-readers versus books, and those who say books promote deeper understanding, and, and e-readers are just a bunch of people <laughs> tapping every word, and, it's, and they're kind of skipping all, all over the place. Is this, is this a technology for, for good? This discussion is seldom actually carried on in good faith because the people uh, involved often are actually arguing about their emotional connection with the physical object of the book. Uh, people who love books can become extraordinarily attached to the physical form of the book. But what we call this is not reading. This is book collecting. A very common argument here uh, has always been that kids today have no attention span. But if you actually are paying any attention to the reading habits of kids today, uh, what has every kid today actually read, whether they're readers or not? The seven-volume novel of Harry Potter. Uh, that's like 10,000 pages of prose just for starters. Uh, our, uh, popular television series are now 100, 150 hour, uh, films. Uh, something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is not aspiring to be high art, is a 100 hour film about coming of age intended to be viewed over the course of seven years. Uh, compared to this, Warhol's experiments with eight hour films. Uh, seem uh, hardly uh, significant. 
to to put a name and and a face to to the other side. Uh, Nick Carr, whom I know yep, you've written shallows. about. <laughs> yeah, he you know it's it's his per yeah the book the shallows what what the internet is doing to our brains. Um, you know received a lot of attention. I think it was published in two thousand eight or two thousand nine for essentially saying this this kind of clicking all over the place is is, uh, is not good. I guess he, he would disagree with um, with your assessment, essentially that it's promoting surface-level understanding and um, it, it, it's not essentially working to make us uh, any smarter and definitely not doing it much to um, improve attention spans, even as, paradoxically, we have access to more education and more information than than we've ever really had. You clearly disagree with this. Yeah, uh, Core's research method here is essentially Socratic. He looks into himself, and he sees a change. Uh, he's having more trouble uh, paying attention to one thing because there are so many things commanding his attention. Uh, that this could be the result of the web, but it could be the result of being a little bit older and having more diverse interests and not being as interested as he once was in his work. Uh, this is not an unusual experience for uh, writers and intellectuals. It's happened many times before, uh, and there's no reason to think that it's particularly tied to technology. What is true is that it can be marginally harder to keep your nose to the grindstone when there's so much access to so many other wonderful things. But that's just the old question of how you're going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris. <laughs> um, I, I had kind of one final final question before we move on to the the picks, um, picks of the week. Um, uh, I quite often have, have discussions on um, Twitter with uh, friends in various places um, about this idea of um, difficulty and um, whether something should be uh, intuitive or not, um, and we'll post in show notes a link to to um, a couple of blog posts that you've written about this idea of intuitive software, um, and um, you know it's, it's something which which Tinderbox sometimes gets um, uh, gets criticised for saying, ah, oh, you know, I can't. Um, um uh, when 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 i take take the software um I, I don't know what to do with it or or it, it it seems complicated um uh there's this tension between um uh kind of the i guess maybe the the, the kind of design community um where um everything perhaps should be uh instinctive or or this word intuitive uh, versus um, uh, perhaps um, uh, you know what 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 we have uh, in in certain aspects of 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 Tinderbox where uh, perhaps something isn't intuitive but yet it's still incredibly powerful. Um, could you say something about about this kind of um, this issue or this um, this kind of debate? Uh, people continually seeking um, uh, intuitive things. Is that what we should be seeking? Well, in software, we've been schooled to think that everything should be immediately intuitive uh, because some things 
really ought to be intuitive, and as occasionally they weren't. A subway turnstile should be reasonably easy to operate, and if it's not, you just aren't designing it correctly. Uh, on the other hand, some things really are rocket science, and while you might be able to make it easier to do rocket science, you aren't going to make rocket science uh, intuitive. Uh, much of our knowledge work, everyone's everyday uh, knowledge work, uh, is actually quite difficult and involves learning extraordinarily difficult things. That This goes for people who work at home, this goes for writers, this goes for little children. You're keeping track of enormously complicated things and trying to make sense of them. There's no reason to think that the tools for doing things that are extremely difficult and that challenge all of our abilities are going to be extremely easy and that we'll be able to pick them up and use them without a thought. Remember how hard it was to learn to read and to learn to use books. Uh, people spend years doing this, and uh, there's no reason for us to expect that every aspect of the tools we use to manipulate ideas are going to be trivial to use. That doesn't mean they should be unnecessarily hard uh, to use, but sometimes things just are complicated. Sometimes things really are difficult. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's uh, uh, from from that um, uh, blog post um, uh, you wrote, um, you said, it's not our job to make it easy, it's our job to make it possible, if we can, or to bring it closer to the realm of possibility than it was before. I think that, that kind of sums up that sentiment quite well. We forget that all people do need sometimes to fill in forms, but much of what we do really is difficult and really is important. Also, it's important to remember for software that most of the use uh, that software actually gets is repeated use by people who are using it all the time. Uh, we valorize usability, which means uh, what we now call onboarding, the first use. Uh, does the program demo well? Can we learn to use it right away? Uh, and we, uh, in recent years, have been uh, valorizing extraordinarily minimalism, extraordinary minimalism, uh, programs stripped of functionality so that they're easy to use because they simply don't do a whole lot. Well, it's true that uh, some programs have created so much functionality that we don't use much of the functionality because no one uses much of that functionality. Uh, but often we actually do need lots of functionality because we've got a lot to do. I uh, asked you in advance to, if, you, um, uh, if you had a, 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 a pick of a book, something which um, perhaps you think uh, people would find interesting to, to, to read. Yeah, I was trying to think what would make sense. Uh, I'm going to suggest one that I think is a little bit off the wall. Uh, Joe Walton's Among Others, winner of a bunch of awards, including the Hugo and Nebula Award, but not much talked about in uh, general circles. It's a fascinating story that uh, does many things, but one of the most significant is it's a wonderful reflection of the way books work and what they mean to people.
That's great. Um, I will definitely check that out. Um, uh, and uh, for listeners, I should definitely recommend um, that uh, if they still use RSS, um, they should uh, subscribe to um, to your blog because you're 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 always reading um, a kind of wonderful variety of things from different corners of all sorts of different subjects, from fiction to nonfiction to um, well, all sorts of things. Um, I always um, uh, come across various um, recommendations and, and, and things uh, things that I then add to my add to my queue of books to read. Matt, did you have um, uh, uh, something you've been uh, reading this week? Yes, my uh, my pick is decidedly less interesting and far more conventional. Um, I think it was literally sitting right on at the front of the Barnes and Nobles that I walked into. <laughs> uh, Poor Economics by Esther Dufflo and Abhijit Banerjee. Um, it's pretty interesting, about a third of the way through it now, and they're essentially trying to uh, find this third way. You know, In international development, there's like the William Easterlies of the world who are the, the skeptics, and on the other side, there's the, the kind of the global development advocates, and, and they're essentially saying there, there is another way uh, here, and um, was reviewed fairly well, so about a third of the way through it, and uh, that's my pick of the week. Do you have a one-sentence summary of what the other way is? Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, no. <laughs> One sentence, not so much. Uh, it's a bit of it's their tagline. It's a, it's a radical shift in in the global development debate. Um, it essentially, just looks like it's a smarter approach, saying that if we just continually challenge sort of counterintuitive notions uh we may arrive closer to the truth like why do for example the poor not get health care in developing countries and and these kinds of things and showing that there's a level of rationality here if we just scratch deep enough um i'll let you know when i finish it uh mark did you did you have a um uh, think about a a film uh, you might want to, to recommend to us Sure. Uh, I actually came up with a pair because I couldn't decide. Uh, but, but they're both uh, easy to find streaming, and they work nicely as a double feature. How I Live Now by Meg Rosoff and Brick, and I've forgotten the writer-director's name, but they're both uh, stylish and surprising uh, movies about uh, kids in dystopias. Uh, we've had lots of fascinating YA about children in dystopian worlds. How I Live Now is a girl who gets on a plane to visit her cousins in England and sails into a nuclear war. And Brick is a pitch-perfect, authentic film noir a detective story set entirely and unironically in, Amer- in an American high school. Um, my uh, pick of the week for a book is, in fact, a book which I read um, a few years ago when it first came out. Um, and as I think I mentioned earlier, uh, I've been kind of getting back into um, uh, memorization techniques and thinking about um, memory and how to... Um, uh, stuff more things into my head. Um, this is a book called Moonwalking with Einstein uh, by mm-hmm. the American writer Joshua Farr, um, and um, it's you know it's it's a book. He was a a, a journalist uh, working in California, I think, 
um, and he got interested in the idea of of memorization and kind of people who perform these feats, you know, remembering a pack of cards in a minute or whatever, or um, uh, remembering sheets of random digits. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, the, the, there's there's um, he he talks a lot about a lot about how how it's not just useful for memorizing packs of cards and random digits, but how you can use this in your life. Um, and over the course of the book, in fact, he starts implementing these techniques in his life. Um, and he um, goes to the um, kind of uh, U.S. memory championships, and by the end, he becomes the kind of memory champion, memory champion for the USA. Um, and uh, it's kind of the um, if you've read the um, uh, the book Born to Run, it's kind of the Born to Run of the uh, memorization world, uh, kind of inspiring and practical and filled with little um, tactics and things and suddenly I strongly recommend it to to anyone who does kind of knowledge work and, and thinks about uh, about these kinds of things is the memory palace guy if I remember correctly exactly. from that book yeah 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 mark one final question for you here did you have a chance to come up with a song I, I did not, I'm afraid, because I just don't listen to that much music. Uh, my chosen <laughs> form of arthritis afflicts my ears rather than my uh, knees. But a, as a replacement, uh, I thought I might plug a, another sort of amusement. Uh, Absolutely. Some very interesting reflection games that reflect in fascinating ways on the way plot and story interact. Uh, they're called narrativist games, and I think the leading proponent is a guy named Paul Chagy, who wrote one called My Life with Master. Uh, but there's also a terrific work by D. Vincent Baker, Dogs in the Vineyard, and Jason Morningstar, who has a set of games called collectively Fiasco. Uh, all very interesting ways to look at what storytelling is and how one can make an infinitude of stories. Amazing. Those all sound fascinating, and I have heard of none of them, so I will be looking that up. And, Mark, you also carried the distinction of being our first guest to not name a song. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to come on, Mark. We really appreciate it. Thanks and fun. For our listeners, this recording and more information about the tools discussed in it is all available on our website one last time at sourcesandmethods.com. It is also available on iTunes and available via RSS feed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>